Welcome, guys. My name is Ivan Flores. I'm the host for Mr. Ivan Flores Experience Podcast. I'm actually an entrepreneur myself. I built multiple restaurant, multi-million dollar restaurant brands like the Buffalo Spot, Blue Burro, and Taco Masa. What inspired me to start this, this podcast is all about entrepreneurship. If you're an entrepreneur that wants to start a business, that is going out of business or wants to throw in the towel, at the end of the day, this is a podcast you want to be at because I'm going to have a lot of entrepreneurs. And a lot of these are my mentors, my friends, people that have seen me growing in business. So again, guys, this podcast is going to bring a lot of value. I have a very, very special guest today. He's a dear friend of mine. He's actually a mentor. and He's one of the few people that have understood me during my journey as an entrepreneur. He knows a lot of stuff that people don't know, a lot of lawsuits. Um, I shared a lot of my issues, times that I wanted to quit, times that I was going to be acquired by another company we were negotiating. We, we kind of fell that through, right? So I have here with you Bob Steinberger, Robert Steinberger with Soden and Steinberger, guys. Thank you. Thank so, you, Ivan. Great to be here. No, great thank you, here. Bob. I, I truly appreciate it. You've been a great friend to me. You've helped me through this whole journey. And um, I, want, I want you to tell your story. Your story. Who is Bob Steinberger? Okay. Um, where did you grow up? Who were you as a child? I heard a story that um, you started your first uh, law firm in a garage. Well, it was, wasn't in a garage, but it was in a spare bedroom of my, okay. of my partner's house. Wow. And literally, I was, my desk was a coffee table, okay? <laughs> okay. And um, my partner, Steve, uh, he lived around the corner from me. And so we started it in, in his spare bedroom. And uh, after about a year and a half, then we, we moved to the same building that I'm in right now. Different suite, but yeah, we moved in, the, in 550 West C Street. So, so who is Bob Steinberger? How did you grow up as a kid? Where did you grow up? Okay, well, I was uh, born in Rochester, New York. Okay. okay. Um, and we, I pretty much grew up in that area, you know, up until I was, you know, 19 years old. I, we lived in um, Rochester, then we moved to Greece, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. Okay. And then, uh, and then in sixth grade, we moved to Canandaigua, New York, which is a, a really beautiful lake. It's one of the Finger Lakes, and my parents owned a twenty-two unit motel. Oh wow! So that was actually my first exposure to being in business. So your parents were entrepreneurs themselves. They were entrepreneurs. Yeah, my dad, oh, my wow. dad. So my dad worked for the telephone company, the Rochester uh-huh. Telephone Company. My mom ran the motel during the day, and. Um, and so I was 12 years old when we bought the motel. It was in 1970. It was called the Miami Motor Inn wow. <laughs> in Canandaigua, New York. And Canandaigua is a tourist town. Mm-hmm. It's about 30 miles outside of Rochester. And in those days, they had a, a, a park called Roseland Park, which is kind of like the in Mission Beach, you know, with the old roller coaster, right, with, right. with the wood roller coaster. Right. We had one of those. We had a racetrack. We mm-hmm. had the lake. Um, so it was a great summer place. Like right now, it's probably really booming, right? Because it's right. we're getting ready for summer, right? And they've had really nice weather back there. So so right. it's a it's a vacation place. So we owned a 22 unit motel, and um, I was involved in running the motel. Um, wow. Yeah. So how long was that? How long did you guys your family own that motel for? Uh, they owned it for about 10 years. 10 for years. about 10 years, yeah. Did that inspire you to become an entrepreneur yourself, or or how did that play play a, a role in your life as an entrepreneur? Well, uh, you know, I haven't really thought about that per se, but um, 
I guess I always liked working for myself. Right. And I've pretty much, I mean, I've been an employee, of course, right. at, at periods of time in my life. But for the most part, um, I've been my own boss, right? Okay. And I, I do believe that the, the most freedom and the most security you can create is by being your own boss, right? Because no one can fire you, right? Agreed. At the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and say, I'm not making a lot of money maybe, but I'm my own boss, right? So what, what do I need to do to change things? Or you only fire yourself. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And, then, and you can always reinvent yourself. Right. So, you know, back in those days, when I was 12 years old, I had three younger siblings. I had a sister, Jan, and two younger brothers, uh, Mark and Steve. And... My parents in the summertime would go out every night for dinner and leave me to run the motel at 12 and watch my younger siblings. Wow, that's powerful. Which I, I think is kind of CPS material in today's world, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, and so the funny thing is, so we had uh, uh, single rooms and you know one, one bed and then we had two bed rooms, right? And so... Um, the, the rents in those days for the rental rates were like 18 for a, a single uh, bed and 22 for a double. That's what we were getting. And of course, I never listened to my parents mm -hmm. on the rates. I always charged more and they were always blown away that I always got more uh, right. uh, for, for the rates than what they did. So it was quite an experience that because, you know, sometimes people would know that um, I would say stuff to guests and they wouldn't be happy because I would just following the rules my parents mm -hmm. said and they'd be like, we're going to we're going to tell your parents when you get home. And I said, fine, they'll be home in about a half hour. I'll, <laughs> you know, come on back. You know. So what was the thinking process be for charging more? What were you thinking? What were you well, thinking about? I thought they were I thought they were undervaluing what they had. And so I decided that I was going to make my own rates. And I think, you know, when you see a kid saying this is the rate. Are they not going to be questioning it like I'm, you know, why not ma making right. it up or anything, right? And they were always overwhelmed by how much I could. I mean, again, I wasn't getting radically more, but maybe mm -hmm. I took 22 bucks instead of 18 for the single, and maybe I got 26 instead of 22, right? That is great. And I was running credit card right. machines back in those days. Those are the days when you had to call it in too. Right. Right. Uh, okay. Right. So it was it was quite an experience, but um, I did so much there. I mean, we had five acres of land. <clears throat> And um, we had a, a push lawnmower that I would mow all five acres wow. with a push mower. Yeah, it could take a couple of days. So how long? How long? So you guys only for 10 years after that 10th year, did you guys move out? Where'd you guys go? So, oh, I, I didn't even tell you this, too. We lived above the motel. Oh, we okay. had a, we had our own quarters up, up, up above, which was quite a trip. And so. Um, you know, we'd be eating dinner and you'd hear the, the bell ring for, you know, maybe someone wanted to rent a room or something. So, you know, we live right above. Right. Um, in the summer, uh, I was a maid. I could make a mean hospital corner bed. OK, because of that. Um, so I rented rooms. I mowed the lawn um, and, you know, rented rooms. Uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily handy, but, you know, so my mom, I was part of the maid crew in the, in the summertime and my mom paid me. Uh, a nice. little bit like you know yeah at least you were paid a little bit right i was paid yep yep and so, that that actually wasn't even my first job um what was your first job um i picked cherries one summer when i was 10 years old you had to be like 12 or 13 but i right. i convinced the guy to let me just start picking cherries at 10 and okay. um 
So we would we would ride in the back of these pickup trucks mm -hmm. through all these fields and you know and everything and <clears throat> it was a little terrifying at ten years old, right? right? You know, and so we'd pick cherries and you know the trees probably weren't only like I don't know eight foot tall maybe, but it seemed really high to get up there to pick it, and you got paid by the by the crate, right? You know, you know so. Um, I made forty dollars that summer. So, so is that something your parents instilled in you to be a hard worker, or what? what well, what did they instill in you? Well, I, I suppose they did. My dad was always a hard worker. Okay. My dad worked for the phone company, always worked overtime, um, and then we owned the motel as well. So, um, you know, the motel, unfortunately, upstate New York, you know, the winter time comes no one's coming to be spending time right. in upstate New York, right? The town kind of closes down. So the summertime was booming and great, but it was really difficult to um, to sustain it in, in the wintertime, okay. right? Um, and, you know, they could have done different things, but, the, you know, when I look back at it now, because we had a community college that was local that we probably could have rented out some of those places because right. we had um, what we called kitchen units too, so that okay. they could... Um, you know, which with with uh, refrigerator and mm -hmm. stove and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and we had a pool. I, I was also was the pool guy. Okay, you were the everything guy there. Huh? Well, and and I'll tell you, this was a pool that was, it was an old cement pool. If you mm -hmm. ever seen those, so literally we would drain it every spring, mm -hmm. and and then uh, scrub it down, and then paint the inside okay. of the pool. And then, uh, and then during the summer, I was in charge of, of cleaning the tiles around the pool because they would get like, they would get black from all the sunscreen and all that mm -hmm. stuff on on there. So it was, it was quite a trip. Quite so, a trip. Um, we've talked about before about college, how <clears throat> you went through college. Is that something your parents pushed you to do? Is college, or is it something that uh, inspired you? Something you wanted to do personally? Finish your college. Um, well, college, you know, my parents. I will have to say, didn't have real high expectations, really. Okay. I mean, they never, they never said, well, you've got to go to school, you've got to do whatever. I mean, <clears throat> truth be told, I was an average student in high school. And it was, and I didn't really have, my parents didn't have a, a college degree. They didn't, I think my dad maybe went to one semester of college or something, right? And um, so there wasn't really that incentive to go to school. But, and so it was like March of my senior year, and a lot of my friends now are, are telling me they're going here and they're going there. And I'm like, God, I, I haven't even applied anywhere. Okay. Right. So um, I wound up going to the community college in Canandaigua, New York, um, mm -hmm. Community College of the Finger Lakes. And, <clears throat> but before I went there, uh, which was the fall of, of after I graduated, I graduated in 1976 high school. Wow. Okay. So, um, but that spring, but we had a spring break, like all mm -hmm. kids do. <clears throat> and uh, I decided with a, a good friend of mine, Kurt, and my two cousins, we decided to go to Florida for spring break. So here I am, I'm 17 years old. And I decided we're, we're going to go down for spring break. We're going to go to Fort Lauderdale. And then I said, I'm going to take another week off and we're gonna, I'm going to go through Florida and look at colleges. Because I, I knew... From the time I was a kid, I wasn't going to live in upstate New York because okay. I couldn't handle the weather. I just didn't want to be, I didn't want those winters anymore. Kind of my uh, my mantra song was by the animals, we got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do, okay? 
I don't know if you know that song, but it's a great classical song. I know, I know. Uh, and so I went down to Florida for spring break. I had a great time down there in Fort Lauderdale. And, you know, the drinking age in those days was 18. Wow. Yeah. But I was only 17. Um, and to show you what a different world it was back in the 70s, um, I had a paper license. That's what you had in New York at the time, a paper license with no photograph on it. So what I did is when I was born in 1958, I, I literally took an eraser and erased the eight off my birth thing and I penciled in a seven. Wow. And that got me wherever I needed to go. Okay. So it just shows you the, the different, different times. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I, I went to, to Gainesville, Florida, which is where I went to school undergrad uh, for my last two years. I went to University of Florida, checked out the school, beautiful campus. And, you know, it was 85 down there in April and it was snowing at home. Okay. <laughs> wow. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's beautiful down here. I'm seeing girls roller skating in bikinis on campus. And I'm thinking to myself, I got to figure this out. I got to come down here. Jackpot. Got to go to school down here in Florida. So that was my plan at that point. Okay. <clears throat> and so what I did is I went and I, and I, I researched it. And back in those days, if you lived in the state for one year, they would consider you a resident for tuition. Okay. They don't do that anymore. So what I decided to do is I went to one year community college in, in Canada, New York. Then I transferred down to the community college in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and I went there a year and then I transferred over there to the University of Florida for my last two years. And it was a, it was a fabulous experience. Go Gators, right? Go Gators. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> you know, obviously big time football, basketball, right. it's a right. huge school. There was, you know, 35 undergrad students there at any one time. I lived in an area called the student ghetto, uh, right near campus in these older, older buildings. And, you know, we used to jokingly refer to it. It was the roach breeding grounds that raid had, you know, did, did all their testing for, for insect sprays there. Cause there was just roaches everywhere. Um, but, you know, what that taught me going to school there was the commitment to finish what you started, okay? Because right. it was not easy. I, I pretty much paid for most of all of my school. I worked during the summers. Um, and, you know, but it, th those were, again, different times. I mean, I probably, the minimum wage was probably around two bucks an hour. Okay. Okay. Wow. And, <clears throat> but school tuition was really cheap, really cheap. So I could actually do it on that or okay. it was, or it was tight, but, <clears throat> and then near the end, um, I would sell plasma a couple times a week. Um, oh, wow. Just to, just to, to, to eat. Wow. <clears throat> so Why were you so committed? What was your drive to, to go well, through I all Well, you know, I just wanted to do something. And again, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I was just driven, right? Okay. I was just driven, motivated. And I've always been blessed with a lot of energy. Okay. I know that. Yeah. And so, uh, and passion, of course, we've had 
heated yes, discussions about politics and okay, various. I other... disagree. That's oh, right. absolutely, absolutely. Love it. So um, when I would sell plasma, you know, I'd be in there and I, I, I would do it twice a week. So I get ten bucks the first time, and if you come back a second time, you get fifteen. Wow. So I would make twenty-five bucks a week selling plasma. Okay, and um, so I did that for for quite a while, and you know. Basically, the kind of guys that were in there selling plasma typically were the were the homeless and the drunks. Right. Okay. And um, I remember having to press that ball, and they would stick the the needle in your arm. You know what I mean? And um, so, my one of my last semesters, or my it was quarters, I should say, one of my last quarters there, I had given plasma early in the morning because I would always do it like they would open it like six or seven. I would do right and early and sometimes I'd have my I'd be laying on my back and I'd be reading a book or I'd be studying right, right reading right. assignment or whatever and <clears throat> I did it this one day and it was I think it was my second time that week and I got to my class early and it was a really cool old uh, building probably built in the 1860s extremely wide staircase that would take you upstairs to the second floor where my where my class was <clears throat> and I got up there and all of a sudden, I just started feeling kind of clammy and nauseous and sweating. And I'm like, God, I'm not feeling very well. I think I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I think I'm just going to go home and bag the class today, which I never did. I never bagged a class. And I, last thing I remember is I was at the top of the stairs. Then the next thing I knew, I was on the ground laying on my back. I'd fallen a whole flight of stairs, and I have wow. no idea. I would love to see... <laughs> A video of that just to see what the heck happened to me all i know is i woke up and there's all these people standing over me wow wow so um quite interesting quite interesting but and then that's when my parents were saying come home come home you don't need to do this and i'm like no i gotta finish gotta finish so i finished so i finished you finished your college so i finished my college what was what was after that for you in college well so then you know again i was a a wild adventurous guy Okay. Just elaborate. Yeah. Well, um, you know, just to give you an idea, just even some of the stuff I did in college. Um, you know, I it was Fourth of July one year, and my buddy Kurt, who I've known since sixth grade, who I will see later today. Okay, he lives okay. in Mission Viejo, right? Okay. So um, he 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 uh, calls me up and says, "Hey, I got an extra." He was living in Houston at the time. Okay. And he goes, hey, I got an extra ticket to the, to the Who for 4th of July. Do you, you want it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. And he was like shocked. What do you mean you're going to take it? Um, how are you going to get there? I said, I'm going to hitchhike. <laughs> and so I told my girlfriend at the time that I was going to go see the Who for 4th of July. And she was mad. And I said, well, then come. Let's go together. So she did. So we hitchhiked. And it's about... From Gainesville to Houston, you know, 600, 800 miles, something like that. Wow. And had the best of luck. Had the best of luck um, hitchhiking. So you're a risk taker already. Uh, yeah. So, and, and again, those days hitchhiking, you know, was, I'm not going to say it, it wasn't without risk. Right. But, um, you know, you, don't, you just don't see people doing that too much right. anymore. Right? right. But, and I got, I got picked up by a lot of guys in 18 wheelers. Okay. And these guys were so cool because, like, we'd be, at, we'd be in there and he'd be on his CB going, hey, got two college kids trying to get to the Astrodome City. Got any takers out there? So he was calling all the truck right. drivers. So literally he pulled off, like, 
on the 10 or something or the 75 near the 10 pulled off the shoulder another truck pulled over we got into that truck and we went to houston that is freaking and you know you're sitting there going man who needs a car who needs a car when you got when you got uh, a caravan of trucks taking you around right right and um so you know that's the kind of crazy stuff i would do and then um after i graduated Mm -hmm. um i moved i moved to houston texas because that's where Kurt was. Okay. And um, so we all worked for this company called Western Geophysical. Okay. Um, you know, because oil was the big deal. And this is, again, this is um, fall of 1980. The um, Houston was booming. They were building everywhere. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we lived, um, we lived uh, like Fondren and Westheimer, that area. Um, and everything, there were sticks everywhere coming out of the ground. And the joke in those days, and I'll, I'll be tame, was that you could, um, you could tell your boss to stick it where the sun don't shine on Friday and have a new job on Monday morning. That's how, how crazy the market was. They were so desperate for you. Sounds human. like these times. <laughs> yeah, they were so desperate for people. And, um, and, and I remember um, my starting pay uh, was $1,200 a month. <laughs> wow. Wow. But, but, you know, that it seemed pretty good. I mean, and what was so funny is that this was like That's a five crazy. story building and my buddies who didn't have college degrees were like on the first floor and I was on the third floor. Wow. I was on, and I was a pre-plot technician, <laughs> a, a glorified title of nonsense, but, um, we were basically tracking, oil on the bottom of the ocean and stuff, right? So we we're doing all kind of crazy stuff. So that was my first job in uh, in Houston, Texas, or first job after after college. So after college, you got that job, you go to Houston, and you became a, a realtor when? Okay, so At what happened point? is um, I then, <clears throat> you know, I had a girlfriend um, in Florida, and I decided to go back and see if we could work that out or whatever because I, I didn't I didn't enjoy my time in Houston right, right. <clears throat> and it didn't work out <clears throat> with her and and then I was living with another friend for a while and then I got my own place in Ocala Florida for a while just to kind of okay. figure out what I'm going to do right and so I wound up being a waiter in a fancy restaurant mm-hmm. uh and I would I would make flaming desserts and do all that kind okay. of stuff right and um, it was really cool. It was a place called Fox Neff's Fox Neff's Foxfire Inn, mm-hmm. and it was a really cool place because they had fancy dining on one side, and they had live music and a dance floor on the other side of the building every night. And I still think that that's a great concept to to this day. Okay. Okay. All right. And so I I worked there, and then I decided I was going to leave Florida and move to California because my buddy Kurt was living in Santa Ana. Oh, so he moved from Houston to Santa Ana. Yeah, he moved to Santa Ana. And um, <clears throat> so I decided to move. And so um, the the last night I, I was going to, the, the last night I worked at, at this restaurant, the, the maitre d', Salt, his name was Sultan, gave me extra tables. I mean, more okay. tables than I normally would have gotten. <clears throat> and I wound up making like 105 bucks in tips that night. Which was a lot of money At in that those time, days. Yeah. yeah. And so between that and whatever money I had, I had about $200 to my name. 
Okay. So I moved to California sight unseen with everything I own <laughs> in my 1969 yellow Carmen Ghia convertible. And I had my dog Arpeggio and it was a convertible and the top didn't go up. So literally I had all my crap in there with the top <laughs> down, rain or shine, whatever. Right. <clears throat> and, um, and I basically drove straight through. Basically stopped to pee and, and, and eat something. So my next job, when I got here, again, I had no money. Right. Okay. So I worked for a Mexican auto part place called Prestomatic Auto Parts. Okay. All right. And, you know, I took Spanish in high school. Yeah. And I can still remember my Spanish teacher saying, someday this may come in handy for you. And again, I'm in upstate New York, and there's like no one speaking Spanish in those days, right? I didn't even know what a taco was in those days. Okay? <laughs> That's right. Okay? So I come out there, and this place, um, I doubt it's still there, but uh, it was, um, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was in Santa Ana. I don't know, maybe it was on 17th, 4th Avenue. I don't, I don't remember, mm -hmm. but... Uh, they were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I remember working there for about five months, and uh, I had a choice to either work Christmas or New Year's. And, of course, I was a young guy. I didn't want to work New Year's. Right? Right, so I right. worked Christmas Day, and that's when I first got exposed to tamales, right? Because all, okay. the, all the Mexican guys, that's you know, right. their wives made tamales and whatever, and they had that for lunch, you know, and stuff. So I had my first tamale. Okay, awesome. so I worked there for about five months, and then um, <clears throat> I moved up and I worked um, at a French restaurant called Chez Le Trek in in Newport Beach, and I worked with two other waiters, Gerard, Francois, and Bob. Right? What year was this? This would have been like um, probably eighty two. 82. Probably around okay. 82, yeah. Okay. So I worked at this French restaurant, and, you know, <clears throat> I wasn't the most sophisticated guy. And I, I still, to this day, I remember when I was looking for the red wine, and I think I opened up the refrigerator, and, and the owner was going, this is not Pizza Hut. You did not find <laughs> the red wine in the refrigerator. Okay. So it was pretty funny. But, but I got kind of screwed there because, you know, they were kind of catering to the French guys. So, but it was a, quite an interesting thing. I mean, literally, I would maybe have two or three tables. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wealthy Newport Beach people eating at this French restaurant. And I'd make over 100 bucks you know, okay. in, in tips, working on two or three tables for the whole night. And then um, that didn't really work out. Then I worked at a Crown Books bookstore for a while. Okay. And again, I was just really, I mean, coming out here with no money, it just took me a while to really kind of, you know, get, get my going, feed yeah. and get, get a little nest egg saved up, which these jobs didn't really give that. Then um, I met a guy. Oh, and then I worked at uh, University Stereo, selling stereos. Oh, okay. This is in 1983. And this is really kind of, I think, at the height of people buying, you know, big amps and speakers and, you know, you know speakers the size of, you know, um, garbage cans and whatever, you know, okay. people were doing that in those days. And I remember the CD player came out in like 83. Mm -hmm. and, and we were, the, the price for a CD player was $1,500. That's crazy. And it reminded me of now when Apple just came out with those, those goggle things and they're 3,500 bucks. 
it kind of reminded me of that, you know, what are they going to be like in a few years, right? Because CD players right. then just went way, way, way down. So mm -hmm. I was working there and I met a guy who, who said, hey, you're a pretty good salesman. You should, you should come over here and work for us at Computerland. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, let me check it out. So I went over and I got hired by a guy named Hank, mm -hmm. who was the Computerland number four store. In Computerland, have you ever heard of Computerland? I have not. Okay. Well, they're, they're no more. But they, they literally, in the 80s, they had like 800 stores nationwide. And these were the good old days when oh, I was selling IBM PCs and IBM XTs. And an IBM XT, excuse me, had a 10, meg, 10 uh, meg, megabyte hard drive. Had, you could get a color monitor and it would cost you about 5,500 bucks with 128K of RAM memory. And you could wow. put this persist board in and get it up to 640. And then we had these, uh, um, <clears throat> these uh, laptops, but they weren't really laptops. They were, <clears throat> they were uh, it was called Compaq. Have you ever heard okay. of Compaq? I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, well, the laptop was a 35 pound laptop in those days. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So I worked there and that's the first job that I really started making some money. Right. Sales, sales, sales and selling computers at the mm -hmm. height of it. And then around 84, you know, I started in like 83 there around 84 computers started to become more of a commodity. OK. And so prices were coming down and people didn't care about service anymore or whatever. They just wanted, you know, what are you selling the box for? Right. So I kind of okay. I saw the writing on the wall that I knew that this was not going to be long term, right? That right. that I was going to, you know, that margins and everything were going to come down and I wasn't going to be able to make the kind of money that I'd been making. So my buddy Kurt and I, we went to this um, seminar uh, with this guy named, I think his name was Tom Vu. And of course, you know, he's got this video showing him driving a a Rolls, a gold Rolls Royce. And, you know, like, look, man, I'm Mr. Bucks. I'm Mr. Successful. And it was real estate. And what he did, though, what he what his his gig was is find a person that's got a distressed property, um, get them to sign it over to you, but don't record anything, and then try to flip it. And if you can't flip it, then he'll still be on on the on the hold. You know, he'll still be on title, whatever, and it'll be his credit, whatever, contract, right? Yeah. And I just I we we left that seminar, and both of us were like, I don't know, I just couldn't do that to people. Right. That's just yeah. that's just kind of like being a vulture. And I said, you know, maybe I should just get my real estate license instead. So that's what I did. Did both of you get it or just um, you? He got it, too, but he never really did it. OK. So I got my real estate license and a guy that I work with at Computerland, his buddy, uh, Ernie, uh, Ernie Fragoso, uh, worked for... Um, veteran real estate. So that was my first job in real estate. I worked for veteran real estate. So we help vets buy homes. Oh, okay. And they, there's a, a program called, it's called the VA no-no. No money down, no closing costs. Okay. And the market in 84 was hot, really hot. So I would, I literally would tell people if they said, well, I just want to go around and drive around and look at houses. I said that I'm not taking you out. What were the interest rates back then? 11 and a half. 11 and a half? That's 11 and a half. Yeah. That was 11 and a half in those days. Yeah. And it had been Holy coming down. Smokes. It had been coming down. From what? 18, around 18 and a half. So how did, how did the, the, the medium income family were able to pro, uh, provide to buy a house? Well, you know, you figure like, eight, you out? know, 11 and a half on, on, um, you know, uh, 
you know, $110,000 house is way different than, you know, that on a million plus house in today's world, right? So, right. but yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it did create problems. And, and earlier on, I know that a lot of owners that really want to get out of a property, if they owned it free and clear, they would, they would carry the paper. You know, they would, oh, carry, okay. they would carry the paper for some, especially when it was 18 and a half, because, you know, um, I, I, you know, again, that's a little bit before I got into the market. I was still too right. young yet. But, but yeah, you can only imagine trying to qualify for a loan with 18 and a half percent interest rates. So I worked for veteran real estate and the market was so hot that literally if we saw a house and we liked it, I would write the offer up on the curb and, and go present it that day and go present it that day. Because that's how that hot the market crazy. was. And I knew that what I was uh, pitching, you know, uh, a VA no-no, were asking the seller to pay closing costs. So we always had to at least offer full price. And I always, if I saw a house, I, I would tell people, look, we got to get we got to get in here now before we, the, the seller gets a an offer that's not a VA one, right? Because because right. they could potentially net more money. So I would we so we and I would drive all the way out to like Sun City, mm-hmm. um, uh, and places in Riverside and San Bernardino to help people buy houses. I mean, some of the houses that I sold were you know forty nine thousand dollars. Okay, out in out in San Bernardino and Riverside, right? You know, different times. Yeah. And then sure. the first house that I thought I was ever going to sell, I was very excited. It was actually a house in Santa Ana and it was a brand new house and everything was going really well. And then we got the termite report, right? And I figured, eh, brand new house, termite report. What could that be, right? Well, the house was built with termite infested wood. So needless to say, the house did not close escrow. And I'm sure the builder got sued by the current owner, right? Because, right. you know, if you can imagine, right? Uh, so what a, what, a, what a nightmare that was. So I, um, so I did residential uh, into 1985. And it's during that period of time that I met my future wife. Okay. Okay. I wound up going up to San Francisco for Labor Day just to have some fun. And my buddy's my buddy Kurt's sister lived up there. And I thought, yeah, I'm just gonna go hang out in the city and party and eat good food and have a good time, right? For Labor Day weekend. And then um, her name is Colleen. She said, Hey, uh, Anne, my friend Anne knows the city really well. Um, do you mind if she comes along? I'm like, fine, that's fine, right? So Anne and I obviously hit it off and um, Kind of the rest is history. We've been married for 36 years. 36 years. Any kids? Yes, we have two kids. My son, Joe, who's 33, and my daughter, Tess, who's 26. Wow. Yeah, awesome. and, I have, and I have a grandson. I have a, a two-year-old grandson named Zeke. Beautiful, man. Yep. That's yep. beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so I met my wife there, and then when we decided that we wanted to kind of be together, uh, I moved from Orange County to San Diego because that's where she okay. was from. That, she was actually living in San Francisco, but she moved she moved to, to San Diego back home. And then I, I was in Orange County and I was commuting down there all the time to see her. And then we decided to get together and, um, and I moved down to San Diego in 1986. And I knew the market was really still really hot and I was – 
you know, just like the market is at a lot of times in California where you're thinking like, if I don't buy a house now, maybe I'll never be able to afford to buy a house, right? Right, right. So um, we weren't married, we are just dating, and I said, let's buy a house. And so we started looking and we found, we found a house in North Park. North you know, Park, do you know yeah, North Park? Of course, yeah, 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 okay. So found a house in North Park and uh, my budget was $90,000. Actually, eighty-seven five. 87.5. 87.5. And how it all happened was, um, I, was I would always look in the newspaper for open houses. <clears throat> and it was a Saturday morning. And Anne at the time lived about a mile from, from this house. So I said, I'm going to go run by it this morning. And I said, if it's, uh, if it's in good shape, we're buying it today. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and again, I was a, uh, an agent, so I, I literally wrote up an offer and presented it. We got it accepted. And the only thing was, is I was going to get a, a 90% loan, okay? And you had to get PMI, private mortgage insurance. So I had to have 10% down, which was, you know, about, you know, uh, $8,750 plus um, <clears throat> closing costs and whatever. So I needed a little over 10 grand, and I didn't actually have it. And I was had all these houses that I had in escrow that needed to close. And thank goodness, every one of them closed and I got the money that I needed to buy that house. Wow. <clears throat> and so uh, what, what that really taught me about real estate, though, is um, it is one of the ways that you can create wealth for your family and security for your family. Not having a home that you own you know, you're always at the whim of the marketplace in terms of rents right now. I mean, especially once you get older and you, and, you, and I see friends now <clears throat> that never bought a house and now they're paying huge rents or they're having to potentially move out of the areas now, okay. right? Because they can't afford to live here anymore. Do you still own that property? I do. Nice. Is it I, a rental property? Or it's, a still... rent, it's a rental property. My, my daughter will probably move into it eventually here. <clears throat> but, you know... Um, there was a time in 1990 when I was going to try to sell it, <clears throat> and we had it listed for 155. So basically, four years it had gone; it almost doubled in price, right? Right. And um, this was in 1990, uh, the year that we had a really bad recession. So I was trying to sell the house because we wanted to buy this other house, and um, I, I'll still never forget. It was in June that we had an open house. And I knew that I had a, another uh, deal closing soon and I was going to repair the roof because there was a, a roof leak. But again, it's June. You'd like to think you're, you're safe, right? Of course, it rains on that open house day. And of course, it rains in our, in our, in our bedroom in the back and it rains right into the light fixture. <laughs> okay. So needless to say, the house did not sell. And I like to say to this day, it's the best thing that never happened, right? Because that I never sold that house, right? Because it's just gone up tremendously since then. So, so uh, what we did is we wound up <clears throat> refinancing, refinancing it, pulling out cash, and buying another house. And then we sold that house, and now I'm in another house in South Park, right. and more of my my dream house. That you know that that's the last one that I'm going to. Right. So yes. that is awesome. Yeah. So you became a real estate broker. You bought some properties. What suddenly changed that you wanted to become an attorney? And why did you become an attorney and then start your own law firm? You became an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, okay, so <clears throat> it was 1990, and we had just bought that house. And 
uh, I was doing commercial real estate down in San Diego. So I was doing office leasing and sales. And a, a number of my clients were lawyers. And I, in the market, I mean, so basically the first six months of the year, I had all this business going on and I was ready to have my best year. And then the market just crashed. It was, it was really rough. I mean, it, basically from 1990 to 94, the, the real estate market and the economy was in really tough shape, really in tough shape. And so <clears throat> I, I was having lunch with my wife one day. Uh, this is maybe in like 91. And I said, you know, if I had to do it over again, I think I'd become a lawyer. And she goes, well, why don't you? And I'm like, okay, giving me the green light. I, took, I studied for the LSAT, took the LSAT. I went to uh, Thomas Jefferson Law School at night. So I, was, I worked during the day as a commercial broker, and then I did uh, night school. So basically, I, I would wear a suit from 7 in the morning until you know, 10.30 at night when I'd get home. You know. Wow. And I did that for, it was a four-year program, but I did it in three and a half years because I was losing my mind, okay? Because, again, I, I, I never had any free time. Yeah. Never had any free time. Um, I was either working, studying, or going to class. So uh, I graduated in, um, I guess it was like May of... 1996 and <clears throat> I actually took the February 1996 bar and this is right still when the internet was still kind of relatively new we didn't have internet at our house okay so I actually went over to a friend's house and this was going to be the first year you could see your bar results online and again, you know, I took the February bar and you don't get results until like the end of May. Yeah. So, you know, you got this three month period where you're just sitting there wondering, you know, one day I'm like, you know, people would say, well, how do you think you did? And I said, well, if I passed, I wouldn't be surprised. And if I failed, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. And I literally had a, <laughs> a stack of books about five foot tall of all my study materials. And I just kept them thinking like, you know, I certainly hope I can just burn these things here real soon. So went over to my friend's house and the results were gonna be reported at 2 a.m. So I literally went to bed for a few hours, went over to her house, she was one of my study partners. I had like three other women that I studied with. Uh, and I think we were all there at two o'clock in the morning. And you know, we started going through the names and unfortunately, I was the only one that passed of the group. Wow. I was the only one that passed. Now, I think, they, um, I think they all have subsequently passed. But so that's what started uh, that, my, journey. that the journey, right? So, so now here I am. It's, uh, <clears throat> and, when I, and what I did is I, when, I, when I took the bar in February, so what I, what I did, my mom was so generous. My mom gave me 10 grand to basically not work for two and a half months. And all I did was study. That was my job. And I, would, and I was a real diehard runner in those days. So I would go at lunchtime, I would take a break and I'd go run like seven or eight miles. And I would listen on my headset to a tape about civil procedure, contracts law, mm -hmm. con law, whatever, civil procedure, criminal, whatever. I would just listen to all these tapes figuring that I could do this guilt-free, right? And so I finished the bar. It was like from Tuesday to Thursday. And again, the bar, if no one's ever, for people who have not taken the bar, it's an 18-hour test. 
it's basically um, uh, you have uh, uh, three essays in the morning on the first day, and then you have a, they call it a multi-state, or not, a, it was a, 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 like a task that you had to do and maybe write a declaration or something. The second day was all multiple choice. They called it multi-state. And the third day was like the first day. So it was a total of 18 hours, three days. So that Thursday, so what I decided to do is, you know, the house that we uh, bought in 1990 was, there was a lot of like landscaping stuff that had been deferred because I was studying all that time. I just went home on that Friday and Friday and Saturday, I literally just power did all the, the stuff. And then Monday, I went out looking for a job. Right. And I literally door knocked on law offices. And my, my shtick was I'm a post bar law cl clerk looking for a job. Right. And I got lucky. Um, a guy named Dave Beeson happened to have a really big uh, trial um, that was coming up. And basically, I came in and uh, was able to sit fourth chair at this trial and Cruz Reynoso was our one of our expert witnesses. Now, Cruz Reynoso was on the Supreme Court of California. Oh, wow. So here I am, my first case, and I've got a, a former Supreme Court justice as our expert in a case. And, you know, of course, Dave is saying, hey, this is not how it works every day, right? Uh, so that was my first uh, baptism into civil litigation. And Dave did, um, he did some civil litigation, but he also did a, a lot of family law and personal injury work. So I started off doing some family law and personal injury work, and I worked for Dave for about three years, and um, and that's when then my my uh, former law part, my former yeah law partner and I got together and we, we formed the, the current practice in 2000. Um, right now you currently uh, it's franchise law, right? So he's my franchise attorney, and like I said, he's my friend, he's my mentor, and I and a lot of my growth through the company has been because of him too, right? His guidance, right? right. Obviously, some of your some advice you take, some you leave it, but overall, he's one of my confidants that I'm able to talk to about business. So, what made you go into franchise law? What, 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 you went from <clears throat> civil, right, from family yeah, law to well, that, right? Yeah. Um, well, what happened basically? It's kind of kind of crazy, you know, how things happen in your life, but. Uh, one of my law school professors who I really liked, his name was Steve Root, um, he, um, <clears throat> he was terminated from Thomas Jefferson and filed a lawsuit against the school for reverse uh, discrimination. <clears throat> and during this period of time, he had nothing to do, so he actually came and worked for my, loss, for my law practice. Here, my, my law professor was working for me Okay. No way. Way. And um, he did franchise law. He worked for a big firm at one time. Uh, I think it was Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Mm -hmm. And he did franchise law. And I'm like, I had not been familiar with franchise law at all. And so uh, he started doing that. And I got real interested in it. I started focusing more of my attention on that. And then I, you know, made a decision that that's kind of the, the that's the niche that I really wanted to focus on was was business, and I, as I like to refer to it as, I feel like when you're when you're when you're a business law attorney, for the most part, you're you're I, I call them positive legal fees, right? Because I'm, I'm helping you form entities, I'm helping you review contracts or creating them or selling franchise or whatever. So I'm <clears throat> I'm part of the team that uh, a paid participant in that team that's helping grow a business, and so that's what kind of what I love about what I do is that it's very entrepreneurial. 
Um, and um, it's really rewarding for me to see companies grow and expand and, and seeing how the, you know, my clients are growing and expanding, you know, personally and whatever, and, and how things have changed over the years. So that's kind of how I got into the, the whole franchise uh, law thing. So. That is awesome, man. I mean, yeah. well, you definitely has, have helped my company get to where I'm at, right? Um, my other question to you is, um, what challenges have you incurred as an entrepreneur throughout this, uh, this uh, practice you've been doing with franchising yourself and seeing entre other entrepreneurs like myself? You've dealt with so many different personalities and entrepreneurs. Yeah, right. What are some things that you could tell our viewers or our listeners that it could help them uh, build their company? Well, I... I I, you know, if you've never done it before, then um, everything is new. Um, ask a lot of questions. Have some trusted confidants that you can go to, um, and listen to them. Um, I can't tell you like when I when I see like as an example franchisees that fail. Oftentimes, they they don't do all the training they're supposed to do. They don't follow the system. They somehow think that they know more than the franchisor, right? And those are typically the people that fail. And, you know, as, as I tell people anyways, I mean, I think franchising is a great way to enter into the business world if you, if you um, haven't owned your own business before because you're going to get training, support, be able to use other people's intellectual property, and, and kind of know that you're, you're doing this as a team, right? But, it, you know, but, if, but it's not for everyone. There are people who just want to do it their way, and, and if that's who you are, then do it. But... I always say that, you know, you know, if you're the kind of guy that swims against the current, then you probably shouldn't be a franchisee, right? Do your own thing, create your own businesses. But you know, I think the other other things are undercapitalization, obviously, um, not focusing enough on marketing and sales. Um, it's great, and and also, and then operations, right? You're you're great at operations. Uh, operations is incredibly important, and just one of the other things that I've kind of just learned is um, really treating your people well. I mean, I've been blessed. I mean, I've had, I have a, an attorney, associate attorney that works for me now. He's, I, he's, I think he's been with me probably almost 20 years, okay? I mean, I had one paralegal, Flora, you know. Yeah. I mean, she worked for me for 16 years, okay? And my current paralegal, I think, is about, you know, two and a half or three years now. So um, having continuity is really, really important. Um, and, you know, being an employer is never easy because, you know, people want time off. They want this. They want that. Can I leave early? Can I do this? Can I do that? And usually, I, for the most part, I, I, I never say no. That's right. You know what I mean? Because, you know, <clears throat> I don't want people to feel that I don't value them or that they have lives outside of work as well, right? Because they do. They do. So um, treating, treating your employees well and retaining employees, I mean... Just the amount of time it takes to go, you know, run an ad, even if it's on Indeed or whatever, some of those uh, mechanisms now, <clears throat> screening everyone, checking their references. It's just so incredibly time-consuming and exhausting, right? That's right. That's right? right. I mean, and I agree. especially in the restaurant business, you're, you've got, you get way more turnover in, oh, in yeah. that kind of arena. It's so, huge. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more on that. It's well, all about the people. And, you know, and, and, you know um, different generations uh, treat things differently. But again, you know, um, I've got other people who say, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have someone, they'll go through the screening process, 
they'll accept the job and then they'll they won't even show up they ghost their employer before they even show up you know so it's it's kind of crazy it's kind of crazy so you spoke about the franchisee itself on um the challenges uh your advice to him what 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 do you see on friend the franchisor side why do some of these franchisors do not make it why can they not expand to that level where they they have that potential well okay so i think in order to you know first off you got to say the the management team okay um there are there are people who can start brands and there are people who can build brands up to a certain level but you know if you've never built a brand to get 300 or a thousand units um it may be a stretch for someone to to be able to figure all that out without maybe bringing in someone to help that plus you know there's um there are other mechanisms i mean i i'm a firm uh, supporter of brokers uh franchise brokers i think they can be a tremendous tool uh, especially in markets that you that are that you haven't gotten into yet, they can get some buzz in those markets, and then hopefully you can get organically get some other sales through that. So marketing brokers um, uh, is I think key, and then you have to have in-house personnel that can actually close the deals because brokers are great to hopefully bring you a warm body that's been pre-qualified. They can afford to do this, but you know oftentimes a franchisee, a prospective franchisee. Uh, maybe looking at two, two or three different brands, and they could be in totally different spaces too, right? They could be looking at restaurants or maybe a gym concept, right? So you think, wow. So, you know, oftentimes what these franchisees are doing is they're evaluating the franchisors in terms of what is their system? How do they screen people? What are they doing to kind of get a feel for, does this franchisor present that they're squared away and that they've got a good team together and whatever, right? So. And having having that good team is really important. And again, you know, this is the other scalability thing is that, you know, sometimes you may need to hire more people before the storm um, just so that you've got the bandwidth to do it. I mean, there's a, a brand that I'll, I'll remain nameless here, but they were actually out of Orange County <clears throat> and they sold 175 franchise units the first year they were open. Wow. That was the good news, Ivan. The bad news was is they sold 175 units because they did not have the capacity to handle that. And so they basically, and in, in talking to some of their, their uh, you know, the, uh, some of their uh, higher ups, they acknowledged that this was a monumental mistake that they made, that they expanded too quickly. And they spent the next three or four years just trying to manage what they had started. And ultimately they went under, they didn't make it. So here's a brand that had incredible amount of success out the door. So, you know, um, you've got to be realistic in making sure that you've got the manpower to match the sales. I mean, it's obviously very hard uh, to not accept a sale, but you know, my advice always is, is you want to start in your backyard with sales. And, you know, I, I always say Southern California, I think, is one of the best markets in the world to start a franchise in because, you know, we've got 10 million people within within four or five counties. Yeah. Um, and so you can have literally hundreds of units just in Southern California, which allows you to drive anywhere within a couple of hours and being able to help them out if they have problems, you know? So the danger always is when you get like a, a franchisor that's out on the West Coast and the first few units that they're gonna sell are maybe in New York or Florida or something like that. And 
you know, now you're in a different time zone. If you need to go there, you're going to have to fly. Um, it's harder to manage unless you've got someone on the ground over on the on the East Coast. So, you know, growing the brand from your neighborhood first, especially if you're in Southern California, I mean, there's no better place to be doing it. So, awesome. You know, to me, uh, business, to me, how I like a business is like war. As an entrepreneur and as a business itself, and there's so many things on that, right? To me, a lot of it is uh, spiritually, mentally, and obviously in your health. How, what advice do you have for those entrepreneurs? Because I, I, I see very, a, a lot of similarities with other business owners that I talk. We all go through the same thing, fears. We go through anxiety. Some of us go through depression. What advice do you have for those entrepreneurs that, that are going through that? Because it is, it is very hard. Business is war. It, it is. And it can be really taxing, exhausting. But you've got to have another outlet. Okay? You've got to, right? You can't be all work and no play. You know, I always right. think of The Shining. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? Yeah. You got to have some so other outlet. That's what I, you got to have a balance in your life, right? Because, you know, <clears throat> you can't let your business get you sick, right? You know, if you're, if you're overweight and, you're, and you don't, and you don't have any energy and whatever, you know, what are you, what are you really doing here, right? I mean, I, I always think that the number one asset on anyone's balance sheet should be their health, right? Because if you have That's that, right. if you don't have that, you got a million bucks in the bank and you can't go anywhere. You, you don't have the health to go and do anything. You're just robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself. So you got to have balance. You got to get away from the office. You got to have some other outlet. Um, even just going outside and seeing the world and realizing that the world isn't just spreadsheets and you know, did you make the sale, not make the <laughs> sale, kind of a thing, right? right? And you know, you also have to remember that um, you know. Business always just doesn't go up, right? It's going to maybe come down and you're going to have dips and valleys and, and whatever. And that could be because of the economy. It could be because of competition. It could be just who knows what, right? You know, all the different factors out there, right? So, um, so I think, you know, self-reflection on that is not beating yourself up and just saying, okay, things aren't going as well as I want them to be right now. What can I do? Let's, let's kind of like act like you, you, you don't, you're not even in this business and just right. act like from an outsider and like you're doing an, an audit of your own business and saying, okay, what can I do differently now that will make a difference? So, you know. Awesome, awesome. Um, if you could go back and tell the younger Bob Steinberger some piece of advice for entrepreneurship or for life, what would that be right now? Um, well, I tell you, um, there's no substitute for working hard. There really isn't, okay? And the harder you work and, and, and if you make good decisions earlier in your life will make your life so much better in your 40s, 50s, and now me, 60s, right? I mean, when I look at some of the decisions that I made in buying real estate, becoming a lawyer, doing all these things, it set me up to be able to have a lot more freedom in my life. Okay. You know, I see, you know, um, you know, I, like I said, I do a lot of yoga. I know a lot of uh, yogis who are in their fifties and sixties, never bought real estate, live in Southern California, had opportunities in the past, never, never did it. And now they're having to potentially relocate um, or really, really scale down because they can't afford to live here anymore. Right. 
And so it's just, you know, getting yourself a cushion, right? I mean, um, you know, and again, there's nothing better than having a home with a fixed rate loan. And, you know, as time goes on, those mortgage payments will seem smaller and smaller over time, right? I mean, the first mortgage payment on that first house that I bought, soaking wet, uh, principal interest, taxes, insurance, and PMI insurance. I think I was paying $897. But that was a lot to me back in 86, right? right. So um, there was a few sleepless nights. But, you know, you look back at it now, and then, then it got to be where a $2,500 mortgage payment was kind of the norm, right? Now I look in, you know, uh, young people today, they're, you know, they buy a house in the eight, $900,000 range and they may have a mortgage payment of 6,500 bucks a month. Right. I had a, I had a friend of mine, another mentor that I have, he, t I asked him for a piece of advice and he said, I've been, all I, the only advice I could give you is, uh, don't take life so serious. And yeah. what he means by that, he told me when you're up, you're always going to go down. And when you're down, you're always going to go back up. So just stay level-headed. Don't take it so serious. Have fun. Yeah. You know, time goes by so fast. Time it, is your greatest asset and health, right? So well, I agree it, with you. Right. And I, like I said, um, making good decisions earlier in your life, okay? You know, in terms of how you spend your money, how you invest your money, right? Because again, if I had not bought that first house... That first house literally set me up for everything else that I've acquired for the most part, okay? Because that house became uh, the bank that I could buy a bigger house with. It became uh, a, a house that I pulled cash out a couple of times to pay for college tuition for my kids and do other different things, remodeling my house and stuff. So it's, it's really, really served you well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously a very big proponent of owning real estate as, as a component of your life. And, you know, and I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that they, they, they spend all their money and energy on growing a business. And if they're not successful, now they're, and if they fail, now they live in an apartment, right? Or a condo or whatever, but they don't own it. And so I just really think that I if you can figure out how to do both and, you know, buy what you can afford. OK, um, you know, don't don't have such an ego that, well, until I can buy a, you know, 3000 square foot, you know, four bedroom, three bath home, I'm not buying anything. Well, that's a huge mistake because, I mean, uh, and most people can't save enough money to keep up with housing prices. I mean, look at the insanity that we've just incurred just since the pandemic. Right. Right, crazy. Um, you know, who would have thought that real estate prices would have gone up substantially? I mean, in some cases, like two, three, four hundred thousand dollars on a particular piece of property, right? In such a short period of time. I mean, how do you save that kind of money, right? So, um, so I mean, I know that entrepreneurs, you got to believe in what you're doing, but I also think that you know you got to kind of hedge your bet a little bit and. There's nothing that can make you more solid in the long run than owning your own property. Okay, so, um, you know, Bob, some of the, one of the, probably the best advice I ever got in life, I could say, was from you. Mm. And I actually made a video of it recently in my social media. I made a video. Really? I did some content okay. on it. All right. And, um, and I say in the video, it was my attorney that gave me that advice. You once told me I was going through a very hard time with family. 
okay. litigation with my brothers. I oh. don't know if you remember. Yeah, right. And 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 um, I don't, I don't, I don't impose that to any person, any enemy, or anybody going through something like that as an right. entrepreneur losing your family, right? Oh yeah. And you once told me, Ivan, um, you gotta remember that no good deed goes unpunished. It's really- and that was powerful, man. I've always taken that into heart. It- and if you could please elaborate a little bit on that, because it helped me throughout my life. The way I took that from you um, is obviously um, don't expect that if you help somebody, they're always going to play you right. They're, they're yeah, they may they may take advantage of you, and especially if it's family and friends. Um, and, and again, I I think it in part sometimes it can be jealousy. Okay, that will you know because let's face it, some people don't like to see other people get successful, right? Because it, it's then they look in the mirror themselves and go, well, I'm not like Ivan, yeah. right? Um, not everyone can be Ivan, but you can be who you are, right? Um, and I often think that um, sometimes people will, will root against you. They may not tell you that directly, but they may be rooting against you, right? And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I see this every day with lawsuits and stuff in my office is that the no good deed goes unpunished is... It's not even something that I came up with. I mean, that's just kind of a mantra that lawyers say all the time because it, it is just so ironically true that um, people can be given great things and then think that they've been screwed over. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to thank you for that advice. Sure. I took it to heart. I've had it with me for years, yeah. and I always tell my team about that, and it's helped me. The way I do it is um, I'm never going to change trying to help people but your your uh, your advice to me that day, I do it does keep me more on my toes, and being careful who I do help. That's the difference, right? Well, and you know, um, sometimes people don't really want help; they rather complain. They'd wow, rather be powerful. miserable, and they want you to be miserable too. You know, I love um, it. You know, I mean, it's just it's just the way it is, right? I mean, because again, if you're helping, excuse me, if you're helping someone they should have gratitude and be grateful, right? Um, and hopefully pay it forward with someone else down the line, right? I mean, you know, I, I think that the other thing about success is that um, we you, we do have peaks and valleys in, in our lives, right? And you look at, make sure that you tell the people that really helped you along the way, let them know what an impact they made on your life. I mean, I look back, when I first came out here, I went through all those hard times. I told you all the crazy jobs I had. Well, there was a point when um, I was basically homeless, right? Yeah. And didn't have a lot of money. And a, and a guy who I've just kind of um, reacquainted with, a buddy Dane and I, I just literally came to his doorstep one day and said, hey, man, got nowhere to go. Do you mind if I stay here for a little while until I get my, my, my feet on the ground? And he let me do that. And again, I'm not going to say that I couldn't have somehow figured it out, but God knows what could have happened if I were on the streets, right? Who knows, right? I, maybe I get mugged or some other thing happens to me, you know? Um, so, um, you know, just be thankful for all the people that have helped you along the way. And I do believe that um, once you've kind of gotten a level of success, it is kind of fun to help young people. And again, once you get my age too, you know, I consider everyone a bunch of youngsters these days. So it's, it's kind of fun to... to um, to see where they're coming from and, and what they're thinking and, and how I can help them crystallize things sometimes, right? Where, that they're having a struggle with. Because maybe I've either been through it or I've seen other clients through it or whatever. 
and hopefully I can help them overcome whatever they're dealing with. Yeah. Well, so. I do want to I, I do want to tell you that I'm thankful for everything you've done for yeah. me and my company and my family yeah. and my team, obviously. Yeah. So I do appreciate that. Um, I did a little bit of research and I found out that um, it uh, actually today is your birthday for the bar test. It was today. So uh, what is to, uh, yeah, today? It's the seventh. Oh, today, that's what, I think that's when I became yeah. licensed. Yes. So I got a present for you. Oh my God. Yeah, I don't so, drink, but when I used to drink, oh my God. this is, was my favorite tequila. Oh, Don Julio, 1942. That's right. That is not shit. So this is for you. And this wow. is not just because of that bar test. It's because you've done so much for me throughout the years that I'm beyond grateful. Well, thank you. You know what I mean? So this is for you, my friend. Thank you very much. You're and, and, and I will tell you that, um, that the one thing I'll just say is that you've got to follow your dreams. Yeah. Okay. Within reason, of course, right? I mean, I knew I was never going to be an NBA basketball player, right? So, I mean, you know, that one was kind of, you know. Uh, but, but <laughs> like, there's a lot of things you can do in life if you, if you really, really want it. That's right. And are you willing to make the sacrifices to get it? I mean, I'm the first lawyer in my family, right? My mm -hmm. parents didn't even go to college. So, you know, um, it just shows you. And then the expectations for my kids were way different, you know, so I wanted to instill yeah. that in them. They both have uh, either bachelors or, or masters at this point. So, um, but thank you so much no, for, for, for the, for the Don Julio. Thank you, my friend. I got right. three, three words, th three words from this podcast about you. And I think it's commitment, discipline, and sacrifice. Yes. And, and, and there you go, guys, the American dream is still alive. You could definitely make it happen. This is a beautiful country to be at. And just surround yourself with uh, the right mentors, the right team, the people that inspire you, like Rob Stein, uh, Bob Steinberger, that definitely played a big role in my success in my company. So I want to thank you for that, Bob. Sure. Definitely. And, you know, if, you, if anyone wants to talk to me, uh, I can be reached at uh, either bob at legalmattersllp.com or uh, my phone number, my office number is 619 two three nine three two zero zero would welcome the opportunity to talk about your business and and how i could maybe help you grow it love it guys this is one of the best franchise attorneys you could have he's helped me build my company i definitely highly recommend them god bless you guys this was the mr ivan florence experience podcast the first episode guys all right couldn't have had a better better guest than this guy Thank all you, right Bob. thanks everyone <laughs> <laughs>